Tonight, straight from the source, Jack Smith piercing Donald Trump's inner circle, his family. Jared Kushner has now testified before the grand jury in the January 6th investigation, as well as Hope Hicks, the former White House communications director and Trump whisperer. Plus, he's already shaking up the 2024 race, hoping to be a third-party nominee. But Democrats are growing worried tonight about Cornell West and whether or not he could tip the election in Donald Trump's favor. He's here to respond. And drug bust? The Secret Service has given up trying to find a suspect, and the cocaine case at the White House is now closed. But questions still remain. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, my sources have confirmed that Jared Kushner testified last month in the special counsel's January 6th probe, questioned before a federal grand jury that is investigating efforts to overturn the 2020 election by Donald Trump and his allies. Kushner, of course, is Trump's son-in-law and was Trump's senior advisor in the White House. According to one source, the grand jury is asking whether or not Trump had been told he had lost the election. Back in 2020, in December, after Trump had lost that election, I reported that Kushner was one of several people who approached his father-in-law about conceding the election. Kushner had been in the Middle East and just returned to the U.S. the day of that Capitol attack. He later told the January 6th Congressional Committee he was at home when he got an urgent call from Kevin McCarthy. I saw my, heard my phone ringing, turned the shower off, saw it was leader uh, McCarthy, who I had a good relationship with. Uh, he told me he was getting really ugly over at the Capitol and said, please, you know, anything you can do to help, I would appreciate it. Uh, I don't recall specific asks, just anything you could do. The, again, I got the sense that, you know, they were, they were, you know, they were scared. Also tonight, I have confirmed that Hope Hicks has also spoken to that same grand jury. Obviously, she was incredibly close to the ex-president as his longtime aide and communications director. I'm joined now tonight by former U.S. attorney Harry Lippman and former Chief Assistant District Attorney for the Manhattan DA's office, Karen Friedman Agnifilo. Thank you both for being here. Uh, Karen, when you find out that Jared Kushner went before the grand jury, not investigators, which is what some people who have gone and spoken to Jack Smith's team have done, but he actually went before the grand jury in June, you know, what would you have wanted to ask him about those efforts to overturn the election? I think more than anything, you want to lock him into his testimony under oath. You want before he has a chance to hear what other witnesses have to say. And before Donald Trump even mounts a defense, you want to lock him in. He was somebody very close to Donald Trump. And you want him to you want to know exactly what is he going to say and what is he not going to say. I think you're also going to want to know what are some of the things that Donald Trump said to him. And what did Donald Trump say about losing the election and January 6th? And, and there's several areas that Jack Smith can ask him about, but he was clearly a very close advisor. And when when Bill Barr, for example, wanted to put a stop to the, these these fake elect these um, fraudulent, you know, the election's been stolen, all these wild goose chases, he went to Jared Kushner and said, "Can you do something about this?" And Jared said, "Yeah, we're trying." I'm so glad you brought that up because that was Bill Barr testifying to the January 6th committee. We actually have that moment. This was uh, on November 3rd, 23rd, so obviously after Trump has lost the election, and this is what Barr told Jared Kushner or told the Congressional Committee about the role that Kushner was playing. And as I walked out of the Oval Office, Jared was there with Dan Scavino, who ran his, ran the president's um, social media. 
and who I thought was a reasonable guy and believe is a reasonable guy. And I said, uh, how long is how long is he going to carry on with this uh, stolen election stuff? Where is this going to go? And by that time, uh, Meadows had caught up with me and uh, leaving the office and caught up to me and, and said uh, that uh, uh, he said, look, I, I, I think uh, that he's becoming more realistic and knows that there's a limit to how far he can take this. And then Jared said, you know, yeah, we're working on this. We're working on it. You know, Harry, given that, I mean, Clearly, they are trying to ask, we don't know how broad the scope obviously is, but they are clearly asking questions about Trump's mindset here. For sure. And one of the things supposedly Jared said is he actually believed that Trump believed he had, that the election had been stolen. It doesn't really matter because we also have learned in, in you know the last few days that there are some very good statements uh, including one by Mark Milley and one by his communications uh, director that make it clear he knows he's lost. And that's what, sort of to Karen's point, that's what the prosecution will put on. Uh, and Jared, if he's a defense uh, witness, they'll know what he's going to say. But I just want to say that I think almost as important as what we've learned that Kushner testified is, is what we've learned about when it happened. We keep getting these Why? little stones that carve off, but we forget Smith has a mountain of evidence he's assembled. And with Kushner, we have Mark Meadows, Rudy Giuliani, Kushner. Basically, everyone in the inner circle, including Hope Hicks, has now been to the grand jury. So everything there is to know about his mindset, they now know. And so you're saying essentially that even if Jared Kushner did say Trump genuinely believed he lost, that, that wouldn't really be much of a defense. Because there is this moment you're referencing when you say comms director, that's Alyssa Farrah Griffin, right. also General Mark Milley, Cassie Hutchinson, all acknowledging that at some point someone had acknowledged Trump had lost the election. So does, how does that work if that is a defense that Trump's team would be considering? Even, I mean, look, even if he thought he had, uh, thought that the election had been, you know, that he'd won and had been stolen, even, even if he really thought that were true, it doesn't give him an excuse to submit false, multiple false state slates of electors, to pressure various secretaries of state to find votes and, and, put in these fake slates of electors, didn't give him the right to pressure Pence to, you know, he's obstructing an official governmental proceeding. And those things aren't a defense, you know, it's not a defense that, well, I thought I won. Also, the, the worst one of all is insurrection of violence. I mean, he, he does not have a right to do that. What he had a right to do was bring court cases. And he did. He brought, I think, 60 or 70 of them. He lost all of them, saying that the 64. election, 64, there you go, <laughs> saying that the yeah. election had been stolen from him. That's what he has a right to do. He does have a right to question it. But at a certain point, you, you can't then foment violence, which is what he did, and try to overthrow, you know, the Capitol on that date. And to, and to sit there for 187 minutes and, you know, stoke the fire by tweeting things and not stopping things. I mean, he's still responsible. I mean, you want, you want to show that he, that he knew. But at the same time, I think it's okay. It's not fatal to Jack Smith's case. And that could be questions for Hope Hicks. I mean, she was at the time you know, we were told someone that day reached out to her because she's someone who could talk to Trump in a way that very few other people could. So oftentimes, you know, in the Trump years, when people wanted to get a message to Trump, they'd go through Hope. And that day, someone had texted Hope Hicks asking her to essentially get him to say something about being nonviolent. 
And she said that she had been trying to do that January 4th, January 5th. And then afterwards, she said, I'm so mad and upset. We all look like domestic terrorists now. What kind of questions would you have for Hope Hicks? So you're always starting with what exactly did Trump say to you and did you say back? And you want evidence of mindset that goes the other way is always good, whether or not um, Kushner testifies against it. And Hicks is an important player because she's very loyal until the six itself when she really is tearing her hair out and say, what is he doing? Can I make one more quick point about Kushner? Everything that uh, Smith has been pursuing was sort of, uh, we, we saw in the January 6th committee with one important exception, the fundraising bit. That's his uh, unique addition. And Kushner is all over that. There's an important phone call that Kushner initiates with Trump on it. And all the information about what kind of red meat charges can we make? How can we use the big lie to raise money? That is um, Kushner as and, and another person it is. Newt Gingrich, who also testified yeah. last month. So I think uh, Kushner's presence there also shows Smith is pursuing that part. Yeah, and Newt has testified. I think one thing we should point out, just for everyone who's watching, is just to, there is an enormous scope of the January 6th investigation yeah. here. We don't know that Trump is going to be charged. We have no idea. We know they're looking at the attorneys who are around him that day. They are asking questions about his mindset, but we still don't really have a good idea to the best of our efforts, even though we've tried, what this could look like. Uh, Karen, on the other investigation, the documents investigation, Jack Smith's team did respond to this request by Trump's team basically to postpone the trial in the documents case indefinitely. They ripped the reasons for that and accused the defense of giving a misleading picture of the amount of evidence. I mean, they still definitely want this trial to happen in mid-December. Is that likely? It, it, that all depends on the judge. She has a lot of latitude and discretion as, as in terms of timing of when a trial goes. But yeah, that, that filing by Jack Smith's team is just a point-by-point teardown of the misleading points that were made by Trump's lawyers about just the volume of the evidence and how complicated this case is. So They were essentially saying it's not as much as they're arguing it is. A lot of this is footnotes and headers and whatnot. Exactly. And so the other aspect of this is they were essentially saying Trump's team needs to, they need to hurry up to try to get their security clearances because I guess they're worried about what the delays here are going to look like. We know Chris Kyes and Todd Blanche have now submitted the paperwork to obtain their security clearances. But what's your sense of what, I mean, all of this is going to Judge Cannon to make a decision here on when this is going to be. That's right. It's a telling moment for her. They played They played what I think is a sort of ham-handed gambit of saying no date at all. She's got one date and the United States went back on its date this time. Trump, for example, could have said, no, we need till March. But he didn't want to try to split the difference. It's really a maximum delay strategy. And if she permits it, if she takes it off calendar or says, well, maybe I won't decide for a long time, she is playing into his hands and the, and the heat on him will start, on her will start. And quickly, is there any deadline of when she, when does she decide? When do we hear from her? There's no deadline. We'll get a real indication Tuesday at the hearing. Yeah. All right. Harry Lippman, Karen, thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Karen. Coming up, he may be a long shot bid for the presidency, but he could have a huge impact on the 2024 race. As a potential spoiler of this presidential cycle, we'll see what he says. Dr. Cornell West is up next. New reporting from CNN. The slow pace of President Biden's reelection campaign has caused some concern among some top Democrats and party donors. They were already a bit nervous because of the potential threat of a third-party candidate 
taking votes from Biden and potentially handing the election, they believe, to Donald Trump and therefore the keys to the White House for a second time. Joining me tonight is one of those third-party candidates, Dr. Cornell West. He is running for the Green Party's 2024 nomination. Good evening, Dr. West, and thank you for joining us here on The Source. I mean, what do you believe is your path to success? Well, first, I just want to congratulate you on your show this week, and it's a blessing to be on your show. You're straight out of Plattsville, Alabama, <laughs> the home of Wilson Pickett. So we got two Two grand ones out of Platteville. But no, my <laughs> I, I don't talk so much about success in the narrow sense. I'm just trying to bear witness, Sister Caitlin. I'm trying to bear witness to the love and encourage and integrity that Irene and Clifton and Shiloh Baptist Church Black Panther Party put into me when I was shaped to be able to tell the truth about poor and working people because neither party wants to tell the truth about poor and working people. You look at, look, keep, keep track of these strikes, the Hollywood workers, keep track of the strikes of the Teamsters against UPS. Keep track of the strikes at Amazon and see where both Democrats and Republicans come down. Keep track of the cluster bombs abroad. Keep track of the plight of Palestinians, both Democrats and Republicans on one side, and then there's a few of us on the other doing what? Keeping alive the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, Dorothy Day, and a host of others. So I'm just trying to speak the truth and pursue justice. I wish they would spend as much time focusing on the plight of poor and working people as they do focusing on the spoiler. I don't even like that category since so many of folk who vote third party don't vote at all. What was it, 61%, I think, for Sister Jill said they would not vote at all if they didn't vote for her. So I think the Democratic Party and the Republican Party is this corporate duopoly. Uh, they stand in the way of focusing on poor and working people both here and abroad. And that's all I'm, that's all I'm doing in this campaign, part of a moment in a movement moment in a movement. I'm glad you brought up Jill Stein because you know the counter argument here. Jill Stein's actually helping you with this run. And seven years ago when she was the Green Party candidate, Hillary Clinton's world blamed her in part for that loss. And Democrats are worried you're going to play that role this time around. So what do you say to people, to Democrats who are worried you'll, you'll tip the election for Donald Trump? When I just say that, it's simply not true. I mean, I have great respect. I have great respect for my dear brother, Ralph Nader. I have great respect for Sister Jill Stein. I have great respect for my dear brother, Jamu Baraka. Meaning what? Meaning that the Democratic Party is so unsocratic as well as undemocratic. I'm still upset because they didn't treat my dear brother, Bernie, right twice. But they're unsocratic. Examine yourself. Examine why it is you did not speak to the issues of poor and working people, and therefore you lost. If you'd rather lose than really change and examine yourself, then you're going to have third parties popping up all over the place because people are suffering out here. You got mass incarceration. You got ghettos and hoods and barrios and reservations. You got 60% of our fellow citizens barely making it every month. And what's the, what's the di discourse? We want to win the next election and we're concerned about the spoiler. Hey. I thought you were concerned about public life. I thought you were concerned about the quality of the life of citizens. And I speak as a Christian, which is the least of these, the 25th chapter of Matthew, the orphans, the widow, the fatherless, the motherless, the marginalized, the subjugated. That's my legacy. That's the legacy that I attempt to enact in my own fallible way as a crack vessel. Yeah, so you're saying essentially you think that Democrats, well, not just Democrats, but that they have the wrong message. If you're, if you're looking at this, at the election, it comes down 
to the wire. You're polling at, say, 2 or 3% in key battleground states. You know, what do you do? Do you ultimately back President Biden like you did in 2020? Or what would you do in that scenario, do you think? Well, I mean, part of the challenge, my dear sister, is that, you know, you got Trump. He's certainly a gangster, neo-fascist. He's, in many ways, uh, promoting, if not, not promoting, that's too strong a word, one effect of his work is to move toward a second civil war. With Biden, he's better in some ways on domestic issues, but he's leading us toward a third world war. So if we choose between the second civil war and the third world war, where are we? We're between a rock and a hard place, and that's where so many of us find ourselves, unable to really acknowledge the ways in which our system itself it's just so toxic. You know, the organized greed at the top, just hemorrhaging the best, the, the, the indifference, the levels of hatred and revenge. All I'm doing is saying is, hey, let us try another way that Fannie Lou Hamer already taught us, which is one of love and justice and community and solidarity with the least of these and organizing and having strikes against organized greedy bosses, and then trying to somehow keep our dem democracy alive and dismantle the empire. See, I want to head the empire in order to dismantle it. We don't need 800 military units around the world. We don't need U.S. troops in over 100 countries. We need to be a nation among nations. We don't need to be the grand empire that every nation has to bow down to. I'm anti-empire, anti-imperialist in that sense, very much like Mark Twain well, and the most adorable American philosopher, William James. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought up NATO because you tweeted earlier this week that you believe NATO is what provoked Russia into invading Ukraine. As you know, that is the argument President Putin makes and one that the U.S. forcefully rejects. You know, I know that you don't think the U.S. should be involved, but if you got elected, what would you accept in terms of a ceasefire in Ukraine? Well, one, I've got my massive critiques of Putin, though. There's no doubt about it. But mm -hmm. we're not talking about personalities here. We're talking about how the United States promised Gorbachev, towering statesman, that they would not move one inch toward Russia. And we end up right now 800 miles on the border of Russia. And we know how empires behave, Sister Caitlin. If Russia had missiles in Mexico and Canada... United States government would probably blow them to smithereens because that's how empires behave. We had the same challenge in Cuba in 1962. So what we end up in with a criminal invasion. And I know some of my left-wing comrades who know it's an invasion. Criminal invasion, but a criminal invasion provoked by the expansion of NATO, which is an instrument of U.S. global power. And we have to be able to conceive of a world when we look at China, when we look at Russia, when we look at Ethiopia, when we look at Haiti, when we look at Brazil, we got to see precious human beings rather than these competitive nation states that are trying to devour more profits, more land, and more territory. Can we conceive of such a world? Can we pursue such a world? I think we have to. What's at stake? The destruction of the species, the destruction of the planet, the destruction of democracies as we know it. But so we're cutting against the grain, but always with a smile. Practically speaking, what would you what would you accept in Ukraine? Like what? I mean, Trump claims he could fix it oh, in 24 well, hours. Could, what would that look like for you? Oh, what I would do, I would bring in the Chinese, the Turks, 
the African rulers. I would sit down with the Ukrainian leaders and say, we must stop this war, stop these war crimes, the cluster bombs on a variety of different parties, and make sure that we begin a diplomatic process for a just peace. And that just peace is going to have some serious concessions across the board. Russian troops have to leave. There's going to be debates over the territory. There are going to be some kind of concessions over the territory, but stop the killing. Why? Because the Ukrainian brothers and sisters are precious, and they are bearing so much of the suffering with this proxy war between the American empire and the Russian Federation. So there's responsibility and blame across the board, but the American empire does bear a significant responsibility here, even though it's not the sole or exclusive responsibility, and it's in no way a pro-Putin. People say, oh, you must be siding with Putin. No, please. No, not at all. I'm trying to be morally consistent. I want to be a person that has some integrity and honesty and critique, self-critique and critique of others in a spirit of fallibility. Okay, but you said serious concessions across the board. We'll have more questions on that next time we have you on. Dr. Cornell West, thank you for joining us thank here tonight. Thank you so much, my dear sisters. Stay strong. Speaking of a potential third, maybe fourth party candidate, former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan has said he is not considering a third party run, but. The people in America do not want Joe Biden or Donald Trump to be president. And if they're going to be the nominees, which it appears that they are, you know, you, you have choice A that no one wants and choice B that no one wants. You there don't want to be choice to be, C? I may have to be choice C. I'm joined now by former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, who I should note is also the national co-chair for No Labels, an organization considering supporting a third-party presidential candidate. Good evening, Governor, and thank you for being here. When I was watching that moment with Dana Bash, I paused and rewound it on my TV. I mean, are you going to be choice C? Well, I had to rewind it too. I mean, that was pretty. That was pretty. Uh, pretty good the way she Dana slipped that in. But um, first of all, it's great to be on your show. Thank you for having me in your inaugural week. It's it's wonderful to be on the show with you. Look, my focus is on and has been for quite some time trying to steer the Republican Party back on track, and I'm doing my best to make sure that uh, we can move away from Donald Trump, which is a tall order. But that's where I'm focused. I'm hoping we can find somebody rise up and that we can get a Republican nominee. That, uh, that I can strongly get behind and that can win the election in November. Uh, unfortunately, right now, uh, our, I believe our weakest candidate has about 50% of the vote and we've got 11 other candidates that are struggling you know, to get attention and to get out of single digits. Yeah, they are. I mean, Trump is by far ahead in that party. But so given that, given how well he's doing, have conversations about a third party bid become more serious? Well, I think they are getting more serious and the Democrats seem to be taking it very seriously. I mean, uh, look, they're in a full blown panic. They're having secret closed door meetings with the former White House chief of staff and lots of leaders from the Democratic Party. They're they're really concerned about this. And it's not a concern about, you know, somebody nibbling around the edges or picking up two or three percent. They're concerned about a real threat because 70 percent of the people in America do not want Biden or Trump. About 58 percent of Democrats don't want Biden to be the nominee. And yet uh, that's what we're going to be faced with. And so I don't think you should take the thing lightly. It's a long way off where we have a, a you know, we don't know who the nominees are going to be. I'm hopeful that we're not going to have a Trump Biden showdown. And I'm going to hopefully uh, be able to get support of Republican. I'm a lifelong conservative Republican. But no labels is about 
um, kind of bringing people together and solving problems, and that's why I've been involved in it. That's uh, we helped get the infrastructure bill done. It's it's what I've been focusing my career on for the past eight years, getting things done by uh, focusing on common sense, bipartisan solutions. That's what I did in the bluest state in America. And you've said you are a lifelong Republican, but you firmly disagree with Trump. You've said he disqualified himself from being president in your view and should never be near the White House again. But when you talk about those concerns, their concerns are that a third party candidate would tip the election in his direction. Do you think those are unfounded concerns? Well, I think you know, you're, with all due respect to your previous guest, when I'm glad you had uh, Cornell West on and I'm glad people are focusing on that because so far they've been just attacking no labels. And, and Cornell West has drawn a few points that could tip the election and frankly could be a spoiler. But, um, you know, I think no labels has no interest in being a spoiler. They're not going to start a third party. They're not going to uh, run a race unless they believe they can win. And, uh, you know, so 59 percent of the people in America say they would consider a third choice. Um, currently, almost 49 percent are registered independent. And, you know, 25 are Democrats, 25 are Republicans. I think there's a poll that just came out this week that showed in a head to head matchup with a generic, uh, you know, no labels candidate that uh, they would get 21 percent starting out, which is more than Ross Perot got after he finished his campaign. When do you make that call? What, what's the base for what's the baseline for that? When do you make a call of whether or not there is going to be a third party candidate here? Well, it's not really my call to make. You know, I'm an honorary co-chair with Joe Lieberman, and um, you know, I, I believe in the, the the principles of the organization. But I think their their thought is, if you get past Super Tuesday, and and they know that the nominees are Trump and Biden, and that you know, 70 percent or more don't like those choices, that they're they're going to have a uh, nominating convention, I think, at the end of April, uh, and uh, try to pick a potential unity ticket uh, where a Republican and Democrat could run together and try to unite the country somebody to have the courage to put the country first and and put it above party. And if it gets to that point, if it's Donald Trump, Joe Biden, a third party nominee, are you voting for that third party nominee? I think uh, it depends on who the third party nominee is. I mean, there's as you pointed out, there's an awful lot of people that are are uh, trying to uh, you know talk to me about being that third party nominee. Are you willing to do it? I think it's far too early. I think it's premature. We don't, you know, I'm focused on the Republican primary. It It sounds like you're considering it. I'm not, I'm, I'm not considering it, but I haven't ruled it out because, uh, you know, if that's what it takes to save the country and we're in that point where, you know, these two are, are, are not going to have the support of the American people, you know, we're going to have to put together a strong ticket. We've been looking into to no labels. Obviously, people have a lot of questions about it. It's a nonprofit. It doesn't disclose its donors. But do you think voters have a right to know who's funding no labels? Look, I think there are all kinds of uh, organizations supporting both uh, in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and supporting Joe Biden and Donald Trump and the other candidates that are just like that. This just happens to be a much smaller one and one that's just a nonpartisan citizens group. So I mean, I think it's a lot of hysteria uh, and attacks from really Washington insiders who are panicked. And I think they ought to spend more time focusing on either how do we make Joe Biden a more acceptable candidate or, you know, maybe they need a stronger nominee uh, instead of just petty attacks on this organization that's been around for 12 years just trying to bring people together. I mean, I I was very involved in the group and the problem solvers and helped get the infrastructure bill across the finish line. I mean, they've accomplished a heck of a lot. But I mean, all these attacks about uh, where the money's coming from, there's a lot of support from both Democrats and Republicans. 
Well, it's a nonprofit C4, just like hundreds of others that are involved in, in, in multiple other campaigns. There's no difference. It's not something sorted or, you know, or, or unique. But do you think uh, voters there was a have real that campaign confidence? going on, then they would have to. They, I think if there were a real campaign, they would have, uh, you know, a federal uh, campaign committee, just like people that are actually candidates. Larry Hogan, we will be waiting to see if you are indeed choice C. Please let us know. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Right, you heard it here on The Source. The senator from Alabama who is single-handedly blocking the transfer of the nominations in the military, he has told us that he has been waiting for a phone call to talk through his concerns. Well, Tommy Tuberville got it today. So why did he initially take it? We'll take you inside our reporting ahead. The careers of 265 men and women in the United States military are hinging on an epic game of phone tag in Washington, D.C. This back and forth spanning oceans today is Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville, who is blocking confirmations because he doesn't like the Pentagon's policy on abortion. Today, he and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin did finally speak over the phone. That was only after I reported that the senator's office initially told Secretary Austin's office that he could not time, did not have time to take the call today or over the weekend. Of course, remember, Tuberville was on the program Monday night, and this is what he said about a lack of contact. If I'd have been the president, I'd already called me to the White House. But, Caitlin, there's got to be conversation. Nobody has even talked to me in five months. Well, that time span has changed now. He got that conversation. His office described it as, quote, productive and cordial, Yet his hold on military nominations remains. This is a national security issue. It's a readiness issue. And, uh, and we, we shouldn't kid ourselves. And I think uh, any member of the Senate Armed Services Committee knows that. Joining me now, Bakari Sellers and David Urban. David, I mean, you were an artillery officer in the Army. You went to West Point. What do you make of all of this? And what's yeah. at the heart of this? So listen, I was a Senate chief of staff, too, as well, right? I worked for a senator who had... Lots of problems at, at times. And um, I, listen, I think Senator Tuberville has a legitimate, you know, a, a legitimate concern, which which he should, uh, you know, have, have a debate, articulate. He's representing his constituents, but he shouldn't hold hostage these 265 men and women whose, whose lives kind of are in, are in limbo right now because of this. They're not they're not political appointees. They're they're serving in our armed forces and they're not being able to move. They can't move from one station to another. It really does affect readiness. And I just don't think it's it's fair to do to them or the or the United States military. Yeah, and he claims it doesn't affect readiness. Uh, Bakari, I mean, President Biden was getting asked about this in Helsinki today. He's having a press conference talking about NATO, and he was asked uh, a colleague by my call or a question by my colleague Arlette Signs about Tuberville's position. I'd be willing to talk to him if I thought there was any possibility of him changing this ridiculous position he has. He's jeopardizing U.S. security. I expect the Republican Party to stand up, stand up. And do something about it. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with President Biden. I honestly don't believe that Senator Tuberville is the, the brightest bulb out there. Um, I, I don't think that um, he, he represents or uh, uh, has the intellect necessarily to serve with that type of grandiose behavior we expect from most United States senators. And this is a, a, a perfect example of the fact that Republicans speak out of both sides of their mouths. I mean, you can't say that you want... Uh, a strong military. We have this anti-woke mili- uh, movement within our military. You have individuals who say national security, America first, but yet you have Senator Tuberville who is literally 
putting our national security at risk. He's harming our uh, men and women who serve this country. And the fact is, he's doing it because of an issue that he cares deeply about. He should raise it on the floor, but he should not harm our national security over what he believes to be his pet issue. I mean, it's just this elections have consequences. The Pentagon gets That's to make this, this decision here, right? Yeah, and listen, Senator Tuberville can hold up uh, political appointees if there are certain undersecretaries or assistant secretaries in the Department of Defense. Put a hold on them. You know, get your, get your time in front of the president. Get your time in front of the secretary of defense. Make these arguments. Have it out with them and say, listen, this is a give and take. I'm not going to do this if you don't do that and cut a deal. But don't, don't screw with these people's lives who are, who are really, they're, they're public servants. They're in the best kind of way, the best and the brightest America has to offer. And they need to get promoted. They need to get to their duty stations right now. I mean, it's putting Republicans in a weird spot. Even it, but it's Lindsey not, Graham. It's, but it's, you don't think it, so? No, because they're, they're, they're showing their cowardice. They, how many Republicans have spoken out? That, that's my point. How many Republicans with a platform? How many Republicans running for president of the United States? Nikki Haley, former U.N. ambassador. Mike Pence, former vice president of the United States. Individuals with a platform. United States Senator Tim Scott. These individuals have not spoken out and called Tommy Tuberville out for what he is. An anti-intellectual who's putting his own selfish... I just keep saying that about him. I have to. And I'm not a big Auburn fan either, so please forgive me. Who puts his own self-interest... I'm waiting self-interest- for him to say roll tide. <laughs> I'm, well, okay, I'm not going to go that, that far. Speaking of that, Lindsey Graham did say something today. I know Senator Lindsey Graham, South Carolina. This is what he said. I think what the Pentagon doing is um, illegal and wrong at so many levels. I will be asking for a vote to change the policy, and I hope we have that vote. But the point about holding up promotions... Uh, we need to end that. We need a vote. Is that speaking up enough for you? Listen, Lindsey Graham has always been somebody when it comes to national security, has been on the forefront. People agree, disagree on whether or not he's too hawkish or whatever it may be, but he's always put the men and women of the United States military at the forefront. Uh, Tom, Tommy Tuberville does not put the men and women of this United States military at the forefront, and he's showing that today. I mean, Caitlin, on, your, on Monday when you're interviewing him, he even acknowledged said, these people have nothing to do with this, but yet I'm kind of holding them up still, right? It's, it's really not fair to do to them and their families. So I'd encourage you, Senator Tuberville, let them go. Every person running for president of the United States, if you want to be commander-in-chief, should have to answer for Tommy Tuberville. And not one of them have been asked, and not, not one of them have answered. We'll see if they get asked. Bryce Sellers, David Urban, thank you both. Coming up, the White House cocaine culprit remains at large tonight, and apparently will forever. Why? The Secret Service has closed the case and the mystery goes on. We'll tell you what they did find next. The White House's cocaine case was closed today by the Secret Service without a suspect. We have now learned tonight that the FBI lab results showed what they said was insufficient DNA and no fingerprints. A source telling CNN that the leading theory here is that the cocaine was left by one of the hundreds of visitors who come into the White House for a tour and they leave their phones inside a cubby before walking around and having that tour. Joining me now, Evie Pomporis, a former Secret Service agent. Evie, thank you so much for being here because I think when people saw this today, everyone's first question was, really? You couldn't, couldn't find who did it? Yes, I know. Everybody really can't get over this hurdle. So at the end of the day, the security there, they're looking for weapons, they're looking for chemical biological agents, and they're looking for radioactivity right? Anything radioactive. That's really the crux of it. They're not there to sweep for drugs. So 
The idea that drugs could get through, yes, I completely get it. And in the past, and the Secret Service came out today, they said they had two instances where they did find marijuana. Now, in those two instances, that was actually found at the outer checkpoint where people were coming through. Mm-hmm. And when the uniform division team was actually going through bags, they found it and they confiscated it. And then they just let the person go in? Or how, does, how do you handle something like, so, something like that? So in a situation like that, they actually couldn't press charges because the amount was so small and there's been okay. a decriminalization of that. I mean, well, I guess the question that people have here is, does it change Secret Service protocols? It sounds like maybe not, but does it change White House tours? I mean, if there are hundreds of people coming in, because what they had said was they narrowed it down to a list of suspects to 500 people. 600, 600, 600 actually, people. according to my source. Okay, so 600. Well, trust your sources uh, on this, given you used to be a Secret Service agent. I mean, 500 people, do they do they change tour protocol? What does that look like? I think they should change tour protocol. Here's the problem. The door, that door that we were talking about on West Exec, mm-hmm. you have staff coming through, and then you also have these tours coming through. I'm of the mindset, and I did the access control for the area with the tours. I never thought the tours were a good idea. You're bringing in people that... Friends of family, it's the White House, it's the West Wing. I feel that an area like that should not be open to such a degree. Okay, so, and then what I think they'll do is they probably won't get rid of the tours, although I'm kind of, again, from a security perspective, it just brings in so many unknowns, so many variables. But I think what they may do is separate the entrances. So you have one entrance that is strictly dedicated to staff and another entrance to tour guests. The problem is it's all mishmashed together. You have 600 people coming through. And how do you figure out who it is? I mean, I guess the person who's happy about this is whoever the person who got away with <laughs> whoever it. Left who it. knows? I mean, yes. you're not surprised, though. I'm not surprised because when we did the White House tours, and I was especially on the East Wing side, we would have people who would put in for tours, and what to do when you have to give in your information because we would do a criminal check on people. And there were times, Caitlin, that people get, would hit. They would there would be warrants out for their arrest, and so we would know John Doe's coming in for a tour. He's got a warrant for arrest. I would call whatever area was looking for him and say, do you want this person? They're coming for a White House tour. And they say, yes, please. So we would actually enact arrests. So wow. I am not surprised. Evie Pumperus, thank you. Let us know if you find anything else out from your sources. <laughs> also ahead, uh, Hollywood is on its heels tonight as actors are joining writers in a historic strike. This has not happened in more than half a century. What is at stake? We'll talk about that next. Tonight, Hollywood's first industry-wide shutdown in more than 60 years is now happening. The union, representing 160,000 actors, is going on strike. Screenwriters have already been on strike since May, of course. The fight, though, is with studios and streaming services, mainly over money and the use of artificial intelligence. And it is now grinding Hollywood to a halt. Joining us now, senior media reporter at Axios, Sarah Fisher. Sarah, I think we've been watching this with the writer's strike now that it's this in tandem. I mean, I think regular people want to know how, how this affects them, their TV shows, what this is going to look like in a few months. It's going to have a huge impact. So with the writer's strike, most of the fall TV lineup got striked. Uh, striked. Now with the actor's strike happening, a lot of your movies are going to be impacted. And that's especially because, Caitlin, they can't promote them. So when you're a movie studio and you want to put a big film out, if you can't have your actors out there going to red carpet premieres, putting things on social media, you're not going to get butts and seats in the theaters. So I think one of the major things that's going to happen because of this strike is that you can expect to potentially see some movies be pushed further out of the schedule Or movie studios are going to have to get a little bit more creative, perhaps spending even more on advertising to promote them to consumers. Yeah. I mean, speaking of the strikes, we saw the cast of Christopher Nolan's movie Oppenheimer today in the U.K. 
Bob Iger did an interview today. We don't always hear from him in lengthy interviews, the Disney CEO. And he said this about these strikes. There's a level of expectation that they have that is just not realistic. And they are adding to the set of challenges that this business is already facing. And that is, quite frankly, very disruptive. So what he's saying there is, look, this industry is being plagued by a lot of issues. And you're trying to come in here and take more from us than we're able to give. Now, to an extent, he's right. The streaming era is hitting a little bit of a snag right now. We're not seeing signups to subscription services as much. The box office is struggling. But what the actors would argue is, look at the paychecks from the CEOs of these companies. They're really high. So I think that they're going to be at a standstill for a long time. We know that the writers have been on strike now for over two months. We'll see how long this lasts for the actors, but it could be a long time, Caitlin. Yeah, hasn't happened since 1960, I believe. That we've had both of these, yes. Thank you. Ahead, how it started versus how it's going, the Biden-Trump edition or the Russian twist. If you were watching President Biden in Helsinki, Finland today, Perhaps you did not realize in this very presidential palace where he was standing five years ago on that same stage, a very different scene played out. It was in 2018 as President Trump stood next to Russian President Putin and sided with him, even though U.S. intelligence agencies had already told him that Moscow interfered in the 2016 election. It was essentially a universe away from today's planet normal. There is no possibility of him winning the war in Ukraine. Putin's already lost the war. People came to me, Dan Coates came to me and some others. They said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, He just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. One stage, two very different moments. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. CNN Primetime with Laura Coates starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.